broadly, we're just interested in how people work with data and how can we build new kinds of tools that really support um, larger scale or, or greater depth uh, or more insight in terms of making sense of this information. Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's qlik.de slash datastories. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. Hey Moritz, how's it going? Good, how are you? Very good, beautiful weather here. <laughs> nice. It's a rainy day in Germany, oh. I have to say, yeah. Yeah, well, not yeah. too surprising, not too surprising. Well, well, well. I, I actually just came back from Germany, but it was nice there. Yeah, so now it's rainy when you're gone. Yeah. Okay, so we have um, another special guest today uh, with us. We have Jeff here. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Thanks. Hey, Jeff. Nice having you back uh, on the show. We are so excited. So Jeff Hare is an associate professor at the University of Washington, but he's also the founder and director of um, the Interactive Data Lab. And, uh, of course, he's the person behind many popular software tools like D3, Vega, Protovis, and previously Prefuse, and many others. And he's the founder of uh, Trifacta, so uh, a lot of interesting things. Um, so, Jeff, um, how is it going? Maybe you can um, tell us a little bit about um, your background and what you are working on right now. Yeah, sure. Dan, thanks for having me back on the show. It's uh, fun to be back in, and we'll see how it compares with our conversation last time. Um, and so I think when I spoke to you back then, I forget the exact date, but I was um, at the time a, a professor of computer science at Stanford. And uh, since then, back in 2013, we moved up here to Seattle. Um, so now I'm a professor of computer science and engineering um, here at the University of Washington. Um, and here we're, we started a group called the Interactive Data Lab, which is really the continuation of the Stanford Visualization Group. And so up here, it's myself and then fellow faculty member Jessica Holman, who's in the, the information school here, and, and a team of really amazing students. Um, and so that's my, my Seattle life. Um, and then I also have a Bay Area life, as you mentioned, as co-founder and chief experience officer of Trifacta. Uh, which is a company providing interactive tools for data transformation, data cleaning, and early stage visualization. Um, and I think when we spoke last time, it was just getting off the ground. And now, uh, just this past week, we actually celebrated our fourth year birthday from when we incorporated. So the, the time has flied uh, pretty quickly. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we had you on 2012, actually. It's true. So it's... Yep. Jesus. <laughs> wow, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's episode eight, four years ago yeah. almost. Okay, so we have um, lots of ground to cover. I would like to start from 
um, talking a little bit more in details about what you guys do at the Interactive Data Lab, especially, I mean, I've seen a lot of work uh, coming out of the lab, lots of really, really interesting research. And so can you talk a little bit more about what kind of vision you have in the lab? What are the major research trajectories there? Uh, I think, of course, you've been historically working a lot on uh, software tools and infrastructure, but many, many, many other things. So maybe can can you give us a little bit of an overview of how the labs works and um, what is the main what are the main research trajectories there? So yeah, so up here at the University of Washington, um, I co-direct a group called IDL or the Interactive Data Lab, uh, which is Professor Jessica Holman and the iSchool plus myself and a team of really amazing students. And the overarching goal of the group is to figure out how we can better enhance our abilities to make sense of complex information. So how do we take processes of analysis or communicating data um, and allow us to do that more effectively? Uh, visualization is a central part of that. Um, you know, we're well known for a lot of visualization tool and technique work, uh, but it goes beyond it as well. So we, we started off life as the Stanford visualization group. Um, but as we, you know, explore different research topics, we realized that visualization, while a central part of what we do, uh, was only a subcomponent of this larger process of making sense of data. Um, so other aspects of research that we pursue include perception studies. So um, given visualizations, how well do people perceive them? Um, there's a big interest recently in techniques for presenting uncertainty and how people interpret those. Um, but looking beyond visual representations, we've done things in data transformation and cleaning, so for example. So how do you get data ready uh, prior to visualization or statistical analysis? That actually led to the founding of Trifacta. We've done work on text analysis uh, from like visualizing large text collections to interactive tools for language translation. So for example, how do machine translation techniques work side by side with human translators uh, to better improve the process of mapping between languages? And so a student, uh, Spence Green, uh, who is co-advised by myself and Chris Manning at Stanford, um, has actually started a company on this work called LILT, so it's building new translation tools. Mm -hmm. Um, and then just one other example I'd share is um, we've also gotten interested in what I'd call reverse visualization. So that is given a pixel image of a chart, how can you actually reverse engineer the structure and content of that visualization? So you might do this, you know, to create models to better understand the visualization process, or you might, you know, index charts. It might be the only record of the data that you have. And then you want to search over how data has been used, how it's been visualized, whether to access interesting information or to actually study um, the use of visualization over the years in various fields. Um, so broadly, we're just interested in how people work with data and how can we build new kinds of tools that really support um, larger scale or, or greater depth uh, or more insight in terms of making sense of this information. That's one thing that I really like about IDL and, and the name itself, I mean, that you guys are trying to go beyond visualization. And I'm not saying this in, in, a, in a mean way. I mean, it's like, um, historically, you have done so much work in the area of visualization, but I agree that in the end is more like one one part of it, a major part of it, but the idea is how do you make sense of data in general and how do you communicate it? And sometimes this is a large component, but some other times there are other other components, right? Including interaction, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean the the, the idea is that the the true object of study is the process of making sense of data and visualization can play a central role there, but it's not the only part of that, clearly. 
statistical methods, machine learning methods certainly play a very important role, uh, database techniques, um, but also lots of things that are more general in terms of how do people approach these problems? How do they think about it? What is the strategy for conducting successful analysis? You know, how do you exercise skepticism? And what are the ways the tools might help along in that process? Yeah, absolutely. So shall we, I would, I would like to start from like the infrastructure side of, side of research and work that you guys are doing. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Vega and Vega Lite and maybe even more in general, how you see things developing in the future? There, there's been so much going sure, on in this sure. area and I'm, I'm pretty sure you have some ideas on what is going to happen next. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So, so for those who aren't familiar, uh, Vega is a, let's say, a high-level language for expressing visualizations. And so it builds on top of our prior work on D3 and other systems. And so the general idea is that I think things like D3 are excellent tools, hopefully, for allowing people to create customized interactive visualizations. Or really, you think of it more sort of a craft process, like, you know, you're going to make these artisanal visualizations, or you're going to build higher-level tools, like D3 can be a valuable library for that. But the goal of Vegas is like, can we actually represent um, visualizations at a higher level of abstraction? Um, can we make them more reusable? Um, ideally, this language might be valuable for people to create visualizations. But one of the slightly different goals here is that we want to create a representation that allows computer programs to generate visualizations as well. So one way to think about this is by analogy to other types of declarative languages. So for example, for design in the web browser, we have languages like CSS, Cascading Style Sheets, which provide a high-level language, which if any of you have programmed before trying to do customized styling at low-level languages, you know, it was just a nightmare. And CSS, you know, while it has some warts, by and large, is really, for the better, transformed how we can bring really custom design control in a high-level language. Meanwhile, you can look over at databases, you have things like SQL, SQL, the structured query language, which is a high-level language that you express the computation that you want the database to do. It will then interpret that and try and translate that into uh, an optimal or at least optimized uh, data flow for computing that result. And I think SQL is a nice example here because many human beings, like programmers, write SQL queries. But I'd say the vast majority of SQL queries that are issued in the world are actually being generated by other pieces of software. Right. And so one of the goals is, can we raise the level of abstraction for visualization so that both people and machines can generate visualizations? And I'll see, you know, we'll talk a little bit later about why I think this is interesting, but it opens up doors in terms of um, higher level tools for authoring visualizations and also even tools that will explore the space of visualizations and then try and bring back some customized recommendations to help you look at the data more effectively. And so Vega is our language for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I can see super much practical application for this. So I work a lot with large, or like part of my work is also with large organizations, companies, and they are always quite skeptical of what's going on on the web because everything seems to change every like three months. Like, you know, there's this joke <laughs> that everybody's rewriting their whole front end every six weeks. And partly it's true, right? And oh, it's yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> or fortunately, it's the case, maybe it's certainly true. Yeah. So. And, and I think the hope with formats like this is a bit that you can just structurally specify what's going on. And if there's a cool new charting library, right, you, you can still, you know, it's still clear it's a bar chart with this data and these filter options. But if there's cool new front end options, yeah. you just swap out that part, but you don't have to swap out the whole stack. Um, yeah. All the time. So it, it could help with like sustainability at least, you know, a bit. Yeah. 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 And I think one way of thinking about it is certainly with, with tools like Vega, um, 
we're not trying to necessarily target the same areas that D3 has been most successful, or at least had the highest profile. Like if you look at like interactive graphics at the New York Times, like these are very customized things. Um, and they're beautiful and they're very informative. Um, but nevertheless, the vast majority of visualizations are things that people are creating in their jobs or in their organizations. Um, and there's a, a lot of um, improvements we can bring to tooling um, and the quality of visualizations that people are producing, even if they aren't quite as highly specialized. Um, but one of the things that we're most excited about uh, with, with Vega is, well, first I should mention, it builds on a, a long history of work, going back to this a system called the Grammar of Graphics that was designed by Leland Wilkinson. Um, Hadley Wickham has his own variant of that in the very popular ggplot2 library for R. If you look at commercial tools like Tableau, they have a, a language underneath the hood called VizQL, uh, which basically maps to both database queries and visualizations. So this idea of using higher level languages to you know, make it easier and more rapid to specify visualizations, as well as to interface with database systems, et cetera, those ideas have been around for, for a long time. And Vega is sort of you know, our entry into that foray. But one of the things that we've done that I think is quite different is all those other systems are primarily focused on turning data into images which is extremely important part of visualization, but that leaves out you know, the richer sense of interactions, right? So what are all the ways that having built this visualization, how do I interact with it? How does it respond to user input? And all these other systems have typically involved writing low-level event processing code. So on mouse click, do this, you know, have all these event listeners. And if you write this type of code, it gets very uh, spaghetti-ish very quickly. And so one of the things that we've been researching is not just how do we do this grammar of graphics, but how do we start building grammars of interaction so that you can talk about a whole variety of interaction techniques at a high level that should ideally make it easier for people to explore that space of interactions. But as I mentioned before, also allow computational systems to reason through that space as well and perhaps provide useful recommendations or automatically retarget based on your device. So, for example, whether you're using mouse input or touch input, you know, the system could actually be smart in terms of translating the interactive experience based on that context. Yeah, that's amazing because, um, yeah, as you said, most of the existing systems just don't take interaction into account, but interaction is in many ways so so important so um, i think that's that that's that's great um i just wanted to ask you a little bit more about in general what do you think about um i think you've been developing quite a number of systems and and libraries and some have been widely adopted and some others not mm -hmm. so would you be able to like kind of say uh, when we reason about adoption, do you have any ideas mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. distinguishes projects that are widely adopted and those that just seems to, I don't know, not to work? <laughs> yeah, and I guess it depends on your goals too, right? So I, I'm, you know, a researcher as well as trying, you know, trying to develop practical tools, whether that's things that are coming out of our research group or out of the company. So part of it depends on your goals. I think within academia, there's certainly a lot of system building where you're building the system as a means of exploration. You're trying to figure out what works best. And that might be a stepping stone along to other things. So an interesting example here is probably the Protoviz system. Um, so when Mike Bostock and I started working together, you know, he had an idea on how to approach um, the visual encoding problem in a way that was slightly different from earlier systems I had written, you know, Prefuse and Flare. Um, and we explored that and it had some really nice usage. And in the process of deploying it, we learned a lot about how people were using it and also some of the shortcomings that they were facing. And so in part, D3 was you know, a reaction 
uh, to those experiences. And, you know, there's some things we had to sacrifice. There was a high level language that had some really nice consistency across the way you could approach different visualization tasks, a consistency that's not shared in underlying um, languages like scalable vector graphics, you know, SVG. But nevertheless, we learned way, you know, different, different approaches that, you know, I think D3 was a better tuned for production use. And so that was, you know, a, a sequence of projects where, you know, there was, you know, exploration with the intent of the tool being useful, but it was also trying to understand what are the ways we can specify visualizations, um, exploring different approaches. And then D3 explored some other new approaches, but also had a big reduction to what would be useful in practice. And so with, with the Vega project, for instance, you know, we're coming back to it and trying to, you know, you know, chart a course on a slightly different set of explorations. And I think we're still figuring it out. We are, we are seeing uptake, you know, of Vega and tools on top of it in really interesting environments. Um, so for example, you can use Vega currently on, um, Wikipedia for not just static, but you can add interactive graphics to Wikipedia pages using Vega as the, the specification format. That's a great format. use for the format, um, right? Yeah. 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 And Perfect. so I encourage people to go, you know, improve Wikipedia <laughs> in that way. It would be great. Um, and the folks at Wikimedia have been really supportive and it's been really fun to work with them. And we've also seen uptake into data science environments. So, I mean, you're looking at, you know, you know, like the IPython notebook. So there's like a, a, a library called Altair, which is basically an interface to Vega Lite, which is a higher level language built on top of Vega. There's tools for Vega inside R and inside Julia as well. Um, and so, again, you're seeing the use of this high level language is allowing a variety of different programming environments to generate visualizations using this shared format. Mm -hmm. um, and so... We learn a lot from these deployments, but I'd say that the research is still ongoing. And so you can expect over time as that we learn more, it will shift from maybe, you know, right now we have, a, I think, a heavier lean on the research focus as we're still figuring out what's the right way to design these things, both in terms of the language and in terms of the underlying runtime. So how do we actually interpret this language and, and give you back visualizations that are, you know, effective and also um, performant? Um, but over time, I think we'll get better and better at actually reducing this into to practice in a way that could be more widely applicable. So how does one start um, using Vega Lite? Let's see. Let's imagine there is a listener who never heard of Vega before and now wants to start using it. What, what would be the best way to start? Right. So there's, there's like two languages here. So there's Vega, which and the way to think about Vega is what if you specify everything about your visualization and that you have total design control? over, you know, every line width, every font, et cetera, every you know, nuance of the interaction, you know, Vega is intended to be largely unambiguous. And then we have a, a you know, but the trade-off is that sometimes your specifications are quite long. You know, it might be like 50 to 100 or like lines of JSON. It basically, it's mm -hmm, a JavaScript mm -hmm. object notation format. Vega Lite is instead, what if instead I'm like very ambiguous? And I'll tell you just the minimum amount to get across, you know, my intention for that visualization and then let an engine fill in all the defaults for you. So if I say I want to take, you know, this variable, I have a data set about cars and I want to visualize the mileage on the X axis. That's very ambiguous. So it's OK. Um, X axis. Great. But what scale? Should that be linear? Should that be logarithmic? Um, what are you know the, the tick spacings? What's the fonts? What's the line widths? All these things. But we can make smart defaults in place. And it's very similar to what tools like ggplot and Tableau do as well. And then just fill in that specification. Um, so Vega Lite is our high level language that in, you know, very few lines of text, you can specify a, a large range of visualizations. Um, and our compiler takes that and then just fleshes it out into a full featured Vega spec. Um, and so if people wanted to get started, I mean, I think Vega Lite's a great starting point because it's much simpler. Um, and it's much more high level, like you're really at the level of saying, OK, I want to visualize this field on X and I want this one on color and I want you to group by this and show me the means for this 
Um, and so, you know, in a very short uh, specification, you can create a wide range of useful graphics. And the way to get started is just to go online. Um, we have uh, tutorials. Um, you just type Vega Light into Google or go to um, vega.github.io for our main landing page. Um, and you can see lots of examples. There's an interactive editor online where you can go in and just um, manipulate it there in real time and see the updates there in your browser. No need to install anything. You can just go start playing with it right away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great. Um, so what, another project that I would love to talk about, and I think it's, it's at least slightly related to, to Vega is your recent work on Voyager. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw that the first time last year at Viz. And, um, if I understand correctly, the idea there is more about having some kind of mixed initiative system that helps, <laughs> um, a person discover interesting plots is that correct yeah so so the basic idea with voyager is to say how can we build tools that better support the early stages of exploratory data analysis so you can consider a tool like tableau which you know you load it up and then you sort of get a blank slate yeah and then you have a set of data fields and then you decide how to visualize them and so if you have a question in mind this works incredibly well you build an initial visualization you might test your question you might refine it and then you can go deep Right. You might add a new field. You drill down in various ways. You might explore subsets of the data. And this is a sort of sort of depth focused exploratory analysis. Right. You have this question in your mind and you're going to go tackle that question. Um, however, after teaching visualization for many years, I've noticed a common pattern among many students, which is they get a data set. You know, they're given an analysis assignment and then they formulate a question and they go straight for it. Um, and I appreciate that enthusiasm. But in the process, they end up overlooking a ton of things. So they would be like, in some cases, we give them data sets where we intentionally put flaws in there. Mm -hmm. But you don't even have to do that because most data sets have quality issues that have to be addressed. Or the variables are not what you thought they were, et cetera. And so you can actually undermine your analysis by kind of chasing after your, your hypothesis prematurely. Yeah. And so the idea with Voyager is how do you get this more broad exposure to your data set early on? And so to start, what we just do is you load your data set and then you we automatically generate a space of summaries for all the different variables. So if it's a category, we'll show you all the category values and the counts, so how prevalent they are in the data set. If it's a quantitative field, we might you know, generate dot plots and histograms so that you can just see what that distribution looks like. Um, but then the part that gets interesting is like, how, once you have that overview, you then might want to start going a little bit deeper while still maintaining some of that breadth. So for example, if I see a variable of interest, I can say, show me more about, you know, say, yeah, I mentioned mileage for cars. Or tell me more about mileage of cars. And I'll get visualizations that provide various summaries of that field. But then we'll also look just one step ahead in that, that, um, that search process. So what are the different variables I might combine, um, a mileage with to see interesting things like does it correlate interesting with the number of cylinders of the car or with the horsepower of the car you know or with its acceleration we can automatically generate just that next frontier that one step ahead of charts so instead of manually spending you know minutes or hours building up all of these different plots we'll just present them to you and you basically you're getting recommendations but they're recommendations that are conditioned on the things that you've said you're interested in and so part of what we're trying to find out here is also not only can we help people have more comprehensive and more efficient you know, explorations, particularly in those early stages, but also we're trying to figure out what is the right balance of you know, the analyst guiding the process, which we think is absolutely critical, to the right amount of automation around the edges to, to speed it up. I think this is different from saying, like, throw in a data set and just show me the charts that are interesting, regardless of how far away they are from my starting point. 
Rather, this is thinking about it as a guided tour where the, the algorithms are going to help suggest visualizations, but it's still really the analysts and their interests, tasks, and questions that are driving the process. And so there is a nature of like mixed initiative in that, you know, both the system and the person are, you know, taking steps to further the analysis along. But we're very much keeping the, the analysts, you know, in the driver's seat. And I think that's critical because I think if you go ahead and just rampantly data mine, there's all sorts of uh, problems that you open yourself up to. Um, not least of which is you can find spurious correlations and an algorithm come back and say, wow, look how related these two variables seem to be. And it could be meaningless, uh, but more importantly, it could be completely out of the context of what the, the analyst is trying to achieve. Um, and so, so part of the fun here is figuring out what, from a human factor standpoint, what is the right way to make people more effective um, without you know, taking away their agency? And um, do you have a notion of what an interesting chart is in the system or do you just, is it more combinatorial in a sense that you tried all the alternatives and then let, let the user pick? Right. So there's, there's some interesting questions here, which will be ripe areas for future research. In our initial version, we asked the question, you know, what if we make the recommender like intentionally dumb? Okay. And like not dumb in a bad way, but dumb in a principled way, mm -hmm. which the idea being like, look, I have an ordering on my data variables and it may just be the order in which they occurred in my data set. But that's what I'm seeing when I look at, say, like the, a side panel and I see what are all the fields in my database. I have an ordering there and maybe I made it alphabetical. Maybe it's just the ordering that, that, that I observed. We actually, for our initial evaluations, we just enumerated the data values in that same order. So there was consistency. And in this case, the data sets were small enough in terms of the number of variables. So instead of like thousands of variables where I think you'd have a real problem, we're talking somewhere on the order of like one to two dozen variables. So it's not unreasonable that regardless of the ordering, you can actually walk through and see all the individual charts. And so one of the key ideas that we had was uh, promoting this notion of data variation over design variation. The idea being that once I pick a subset of variables, I may have like tens or in some cases even hundreds of possible charts. So here's where we try and be smart. And so we will actually enumerate all those charts and then rank them according to perceptual effectiveness principles. So that given that all these charts are visualizing the identical data set, can we pick the one that we believe will present the data in the most effective way? And that's what we show in the, the top level gallery. Mm -hmm. So that way, when you're going through these recommendations, each chart is showing you a different perspective on the data. You're not seeing repeated perspectives, you know, with different visual encodings. And since the number of variables isn't uh, so high as to be restricted, you can actually view all of those in a reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. um, but there's two follow-ups here that are pretty interesting. So one is that what Voyager does support is maybe I see a chart, I find it interesting, and I do want to see those different design variations. So what are different visual encodings I might apply to that exact same data set? And then we allow you to drill down and you can go in sort of like a sub-gallery in which you can then see different visualization approaches. So we still make that available, but we don't prioritize that. The next level of question is what do you do when the number of variables gets too high? And so if I have thousands of variables, it's unlikely that for, for every step of my analysis, I'm going to view a thousand new charts. Um, and so in that case, you have to think about um, data-driven ranking procedures, right? So um, given that I'm adding a new variable, which one is more likely to show an interesting pattern? Mm -hmm. Problem is, it's not always clear which metric is right. So I could use some correlation measure. I could look at mutual information. I might do, if I know I want to predict something like profits, I might say what provides the best prediction of that, you know, in conjunction with these variables. So I think even that has some questions as to what task you're trying to perform. Um, and so some part of our research going forward is what are uh, some of the different recommendation strategies you might um, um, use in the case of these much larger data sets and then begin to evaluate them. So the larger research trajectory is really to start, start with a simple foundation and then elaborate over time as we begin to make these systems more and more complex. 
um, but hopefully all the way grounding it and be able to show that it provides real utility for people trying to explore a real world data mm -hmm. set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think, Jeff, I think that's a very interesting frontier for visualization as automated mechanisms get closer to visualization and visualization closer to automated mechanisms. I think we still need to find uh, the right way to let these two worlds or mindsets work. And I think um, there is another problem that the more you automate and the more you are um, you are going to have problems in terms of, of trust and, and, and control, yeah. right? And I think you also published something in the past about, about trust, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And yeah. I think yeah. it's an area that is, is, is going to be increasingly important as we move visualization closer to automation, right? And yeah. I, I found it really, yeah. really interesting. There's a whole set of interesting questions here too. Like I have colleagues in machine learning who are interested in various things. Like how would um, statistical machine learning methods be used to, you know, suggest, you know, diagnoses or treatments in the case of healthcare. You can imagine all sorts of fascinating things, which are also potentially scary, like um, <laughs> judicial decisions. I've seen oh, people yeah, model those and there's like ups and downs to that. And I think in any case, when these types of systems are being brought into use, you're going to need the ability to, uh, interpret the model and interrogate it. And so these areas of where automated systems, visualization and human oversight come together, I think is going to be, it's already important. It's just going to become more important over time. So this is a good time to take a little break and talk about our sponsor this week. Once again, Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's Q-L-I-K dot D-E slash data stories. And okay, I have to admit, this is quite a special ad block for me this time because Click business analytics strategist James Richardson wrote a blog post on the Click blog about beauty and truth in data visualizations. And if you know me and my work, you know that these two concepts are yeah quite important to me. They're in fact part of my job title that I made up. Anyways, so how is it? Are truth and beauty mutually exclusive or do they support each other or are they independent? James Richardson digs deep into poetry, philosophy, and history. And if you want to know what he learned about the relation of truth and beauty, check out the blog post, which is linked from the show notes. So thanks again to Click for sponsoring us. And now back to the show. I wanted to ask you something else about um, Voyager. Yeah. If I remember correctly, you've been running studies on top of that and try to understand um what plots people explore when they actually use this, they do have these recommendations available. Yeah. Um, so can you describe a little bit what you found there? Yeah, so we ran a study um, where we compared um, Voyager with basically a remake of Tableau that we call um, Polestar. And so that's named Polestar in honor of Polaris, which was the Stanford research project that eventually became Tableau. And we actually, uh, I should mention, we collaborated uh, with a, a bunch of folks at, at Tableau on this as well. Um, and so what we did was we set up these two systems. So basically there's sort of this depth-oriented system that's uh, Polestar and this breadth-oriented system Voyager gave people data sets and had them conduct data sets they hadn't seen before, which is kind of the important thing we were testing, and then have them explore and then compared the results. And so what we found is with systems like Voyager, people uh, had higher breadth 
Um, so that was interesting. So they actually saw more unique um, perspectives on the data set. So their coverage of the different data variables and their combinations was higher than if they had um, explored the data using a traditional tool. Um, and we also had them like, you know, um, create bookmarks. So anytime they found a view that they thought was interesting enough that they could imagine sharing it with a colleague, they bookmarked it. Um, and those, again, were over a more diverse set of variables. And interestingly enough, one of the things that we found with Voyager was that a large proportion of those bookmark views were ones that had been automatically recommended. So the fact that instead of just showing the chart that involved the variables that were explicitly asked for, um, a large percentage, a majority of the views that people found interesting were the ones where we looked one step ahead in the search process and provided those as recommendations. So we're definitely seeing value there. The big takeaway, though, is that we learned that these tools are highly complementary mm -hmm. and that people would, you know, when they're getting an overview, they first start exploring using a tool like Voyager. And then they and then questions, more specific questions occur to them. Then that's when they prefer to be in an environment um, like Polestar or something like Tableau, where they can then go deep dive on that question. So one of the interesting things that we're thinking about is instead of having these as two very disparate modes or UIs, what is the way that you hybridize these ideas where you create visual analysis systems that allow you to go broad and then go deep in a way where alternating between those two um, analysis strategies um, is made much more fluid? Um, and then one thing, just because it might not have been clear that I'll mention is like underneath the hood, what we're actually doing in all of these systems is using Vega Lite as our representation language. So one of the nice things about having these high-level languages is that, A, it was actually incredibly easy to make a system very similar to Tableau. The initial prototype was actually done in less than a day um, because of the, you know, the language provided the facilities uh, to make that. Really, we just had to create a specification UI on top of the language. Then in the case of Voyager, what we're actually doing is enumerating a large number of possible visualizations. So we're just saying, let's generate hundreds or thousands of Vega Lite specifications, um, analyze them, rank them according to perceptual effectiveness principles, and then use that to drive the recommendation. So what you're seeing here is really the goal of like thinking about this language stack as a way to provide a foundation for next generation UIs for visual analysis. Um, and so you're kind of seeing how all these pieces hopefully start to fit together in terms of the larger vision of our lab. Yeah, I think every time you have this kind of recommendation systems or UIs, the biggest challenge is knowing when is the right time to provide some recommendations, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think mm -hmm. historically we have very bad examples out there. Sure. Um, you mean clip, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I guess these systems can also work in an on-demand fashion, right? And... Um, yeah, um, I think it's a, it's a it's it's a very interesting challenge. Yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, I was down in San Diego uh, visiting friends at UCSD, and I, I gave a talk there that you can find on YouTube. The topic is predictive interaction. Oh, yeah. The idea yep. being, you know, you know, how do we uh, pr you know, generate or create software systems that have a notion of the task that we're trying to complete and can support us effectively. You know, and as soon as you raise that question, the first thing that pops into many people's minds is like, oh, no, he's talking about Clippy. <laughs> like, like, I'm still traumatized by this thing. Um, but, but I think, you know, but I, I think being, being careful in terms of your model of the task and how well can you model or have a sense of what someone's trying to do, whether that's in a specific or a very general way, and then knowing what's the right way in which to introduce those recommendations, like not interrupting people's flow, but yet making them perceptible and available in a way that's useful. Um, it's a really fun challenge because it's drawing on lots of technical strains in terms of how do you have the right models and the right recommendation systems. But, but just as important, if not more important, is how you introduce that into the actual mechanics of the UI. How do you uh, fold this into the design process effectively? Um, so 
uh, definitely a, a fun area to be working in. And the whole social component you mentioned can be huge in systems like these. If you think, let's say, institutions like the World Bank or so would let Data Voyager run for a few years and then you can look which views have been bookmarked all the time. Yeah. You know, how can we feed that back into the system? I'm thinking a bit also about Spotify or so, right? So yep. if yep. you have yep. this mass of like this huge... Uh, mass of different variations of something available and then have people weed it out uh, for each other. I think that can be super powerful. And um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, architecting systems that learn is a, is a critical part of these is predictive interaction tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting because uh, both with Voyager and in Trifacta, we've taken this approach and we found that, you know, being able to bootstrap these systems by having good principles along which to make recommendations allows you to do something useful right out the box. And then seeing how these things will evolve over time um, through learned usage data is fascinating. I'm also really interested in how it might diverge based on different user populations. Mm -hmm. So if you work on, you know, finance data and someone else works on like biological or health data, is the type of recommendations you, you want to make going to be different? Like, are there different strategies for different domains? And it's going to be fun to see the degree to which this does or doesn't play out in usage data over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think and, and as you said at the beginning, there is the even broader question of whether what happens when you are helping people um, look into a broader set of trends or, or relationships in data sets. I think the large majority of people work in a way that, I mean, I think it's not just your students, probably most, most people just start from very precise questions and try to pursue this question mm -hmm. and uh, disregard the rest, right? I think it's a very hard skill, the one to, that you need to learn about doing exploratory data analysis and really, really being a data detective kind of person. I think this is not very mm -hmm. well recognized mm -hmm. in general and not very much even taught at school, <laughs> right? And um, and I think it's a very important component. So um, I would like to go now to move on to maybe Trifacta. Sure. And uh, last time you came on the show, I think you were just starting and now it's almost like four years after. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, yeah, we just had our fourth year birthday. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I would love to hear more about what you guys did in this during these four years. I know that Trifact has been very successful. I'm really excited to see um, some of um, visualization research actually turning into a successful um, product and, and company. So what happened? Okay, so yeah, we started back in 2012, you know, <laughs> when we last met. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, and so there was a, um, so, the, so the first the name Trifacta is actually meant to be, you know, the, the combination of people, uh, computation and data. So how do you make data and large scale processing, you know, more accessible to more people? And particularly in the early stages. So really the focus of Trifacta is given, you know, messy or raw data sets, you know, how do you structure them, parse them, do data cleaning, also combine disparate data sources that might not have been designed to be brought together, turn that from a programming exercise into something that's visual and interactive, and also scalable, so that you might work with a sample of the data in an interactive environment. And then as a result of that, you know, we learn a program that we can run at scale across your cluster. Um, and so really these, these early stages of, of data preparation, which at least in our interviews with working data analysts is something like 80% of their normal working hours. So huge time sink, you know, people might spend more time exploring more hypotheses or building more models, for example, if you are able to reduce the time um, and that they spend getting this data ready. 
That said, getting it ready is still a process in which you learn a lot, just as we were just discussing, sort of this exploration phase. So you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater either. And so I think having this interactive environment in which people are learning very important things about their data and then also systematically encoding them to make the data more useful downstream, you know, is all sort of the things that we want to support. We started as three people. So it was myself, uh, my Stanford PhD student, Sean Candle, and our collaborator at UC Berkeley, Professor Joe Hellerstein. So, yeah, so the other part of the trifecta is that there were three of us. So there's a little, <laughs> you know, not so funny joke in there. Um, but now was that was three. And now I think we're 105. Wow. So we've grown wow. a lot in four years. Um, so so our, our primary office is in San Francisco. So that's our headquarters and where most people are. We have sales folks, you know, around the world. And then we also have an engineering office, you know, closer to you, Moritz. Uh, we have one in Berlin. Um, where Lars Grammel, who some of you may know from the visualization community, is uh, running an engineering team, you know, out of Germany. Um, and so it's been very exciting to see the company grow. Um, you know, since we last spoke, we've, uh, you know, obviously had multiple releases of the product. Um, we're out there in a number of companies. So, so some of our customers include GoPro, Pepsi, Royal Bank of Scotland, also the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They process all these healthcare records. Those are passing through Trifacta as well. Um, and for those who are interested in trying it out, we actually have a free version that you can uh, load on your own desktop. It's called Trifacta Wrangler. Um, it's like a freemium uh, offering that will allow you to wrangle data sets of up to 100 megabytes in size for free. Um, and so you can try it out um, and, and give the UI a spin. In addition to you know, parsing and transforming data, we have a lot of facilities for doing early stage visualization as well. So we'll kind of automatically profile your data, figure out things about the distribution. So are there type errors? Are there outliers, et cetera? And automatically generate visualizations for each of those uh, fields of your database uh, uh, to help push along your exploration and data cleaning process. Yeah, I've been using um, Trifactas tools uh, a little bit. And I have to say, it's really interesting. It's very useful when you just don't know what is in a, in a given data set and you want to familiarize with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the, prof the data profiling um, mechanism is, is really, really useful. And, and when I think about it, there's not a lot of tools out there that just give you a broad overview of what is, an, what is in a given data set, right? Most existing visualization tools require you to first specify what you want to see and then you see it, right? <laughs> and I, I think that's, that's, right. The, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's 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 very powerful. Um, so, what happened during these four four years? Do you have any interesting stories <laughs> or or success stories? <laughs> yeah, well, I mentioned you know we have a, a, a number of customers who are successfully using this, and by their own estimates, you know, getting uh, at least an order of magnitude improvement on the time it takes for them to to initiate new data jobs. So. To me, like, you know, enabling, you know, these customers and users to be more successful is like the most exciting thing. Um, and so in that sense, it's not very different in, in some ways from, you know, our open source tools as well, where I think the biggest reward for us is seeing people pick them up and, and be able to do valuable things with it. Um, I think there's been also certainly been plenty of lessons learned along the way. I think um, as we as the company grew and we hired more people, including, you know, the executive staff, there's a lot of learnings for us three academics along the way. Uh, you know, uh, over a year ago, we hired our full time CEO, Adam Wilson, allowing Joe Hellerstein to step down and, and go back to Berkeley uh, for some of his time as well, um, which I think was you know great for everyone, um, including, you know, I think we were, you know, we, we were doing an OK job, I think, at building out product, um, you know, doing more 
marketing, et cetera. But it turns out a life as an academic doesn't necessarily prepare you to be an effective salesperson. I can't imagine. Um, and so understanding what salespeople do has been very fascinating. <laughs> and not just the attitude or like persistence they have, but even just the strategies they have. Like salespeople or the sales teams are much more applied social scientists than I realized. <laughs> okay. You go in and you really figure out the figure out the structure of, of an organization, who talks to who, et cetera, and just understanding, you know, what makes that organization tick in a way that you can actually talk to them more effectively and then um, allow them to see how, you know, what we're doing could be valuable to them. Yeah, I think what, what one thing that I'm really interested in is being a researcher myself. I think probably when 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 you develop software in a company, then you you have to develop in a way that is really, really solid, right? Much more than any uh, the average prototype that we can afford building in in a lab. Oh, absolutely. So this this must be fascinating in a way, right? I mean, you, you need to have some really serious uh, software engineering, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, quality insurance is is incredibly important, um, and you you know. You can't start investing in that too soon, I think is something um, that many companies learn. Mm -hmm. um, so um, another tool I would love to talk about is Lyra. And uh, I believe, I mean, so far we've been talking about mostly about systems that uh, support data analysis. And, and Lyra, I guess, is more like how do you help a person um, create data visualizations that are more for communication oriented visualization or presentation mm -hmm. side of things, which we know has been extremely, extremely popular during the last few years. All this idea of data journalism and related visual storytelling. I know that Moritz doesn't like the word storytelling, <laughs> but um, it's definitely out there. And of course, the big success of um, like New York Times, Washington Post, uh, graphics teams and mm -hmm. so on. So Lyra, what is Lyra? And, and yeah. Uh, what, what is happening in, in, in this space? So, so, so Lyra is a research project that, that's coming out of my group here at UW. Um, it's led by my PhD student, Arvind Sachin-Arayan, who's also uh, one of the, the lead developers on the Vega project. Um, and so the, the Hollywood pitch version of the story for Lyra is, you know, it is to, I, the goal is to be, uh, to data visualization as something like Adobe Illustrator is to vector graphics, right? So what is a design tool in which you can rapidly create visualizations, but then also customize their design? And it actually uses Vega internally as its, as its representation. So you graphically interact with marks and, you know, data tables, et cetera, uh, drag and drop to creating codings, fine tune various aspects from fonts to colors to line widths, et cetera. And underneath the hood, we're actually generating a Vega specification, which is then the actual file format that, that it saves to. Um, and so the goal, yeah, it's, it's, it's to really, you know, see how can we create tools that allow, you know, a broader swath of end users uh, to customize visualization designs. And part of it's also to, to interact with the larger tool stack. So for example, I might be in an, an analysis tool and I'm exploring data. And if it's using Voyager or Polestar, or some of these other tools we built, you know, that's going to produce a Vega Lite specification. But we could take that compile that to a full Vega specification, load that into Lyra, and then you can go back and start customizing that, you know, that graphic that was initially a very rapidly produced analysis graphic. Now I want to go in and like, you know, embellish it in some interesting ways or customize it for a particular audience. I can then go and then interactively design that. And, you know, it's turtles all the way down in the sense that I could also then just generate the SVG from that and touch it up in Illustrator if I absolutely wanted to do that in terms of producing a static graphic. 
So part of it's not also, you know, you know, taking the idea that one tool should own the ecosystem. I think that's a very dangerous idea. Instead, rather thinking about how a variety of different tools can flexibly interact so that you actually have an ecosystem of usable tools and the right tool may depend on the task at hand. Um, and so we have an initial version of Lyra that we released, you know, over a year ago. Um, it's seen a lot of usage. We have tens of thousands, certainly, uh, of unique users. We've seen it used to create some graphics that then um, actually run, um, you know, um, by journalistic um, um, groups. So you know, be either on the web or on newspapers. We've also seen a lot of people use it as a teaching tool, oh, yeah. so as a way to provide um, you know familiarity with concepts of visual encoding um, by being able to explore them in an interactive environment. And um, the exciting news is that we're currently, you know, doing a complete rebuild of Lyra. Um, so, so Arvind, um, along with some collaborators at Boku, which is a consulting company uh, based out of Boston, uh, they basically uh, redid the entire architecture. Um, we're going to, you know, modernize it for the newest versions of Vega, and then exploring ways that how can you design not just the the custom graphics, but actually start to bring interaction design into that process as well. So it raises a really interesting challenge. How do you interactively uh, specify interaction techniques? <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, we, we have some ideas here. Um, they're still they're still cooking, but, you know, mm -hmm. look for that, you know, in the months to come. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's really nice. And I, I love the direction which Lara goes, this very like di direct manipulation paradigm uh, to, to just directly, you know, touch the graphics and move them around until they, they look right. And and I think tooling wise, there's still one tool missing. Maybe that's even more radical than that aspect because many or a couple of people like me or others like to work very freely with shapes and and visual encodings. Yeah, like yeah. to think about like, yeah, what if I map the temperature on the rotation and then the you know the the time could be actually in the position or let's flip that around. And so you know many people who use D three a lot of processing use these sort of types of visualizations that don't fit into existing chart types. So they are smart about how they use visual encodings, but yeah. it's not a ready-made chart type. Do you think there's a, is there a tool there that does something in this direction or could there be one? Could Lara also go in this direction? What, what's your, what's your feeling there? Or is it too, yeah, no, too niche and too artisanal to actually be a, a good market for a tool? Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I don't know about the the business implications, but certainly in terms of, of the the usefulness, I think there's absolutely a space here. And I think for us, one of the things that from a research perspective that we'll be learning is, you know, we have a bunch of tools that are evolving together. So there may be things that you'd like to do in Lyra, but you actually can't because uh, for every reason, Vega can't express that. And then we learn something about how we should have better designed Vega and ideally one that we can then take up going forward. So part of it's just learning about the space of representations and how to, um, you know, capture those appropriately. But in any case, you could imagine, you know, based on what we learned here, it could also inform future tools that might be, you know, similarly, you know, um, you know, kind of like the analog would be to, to how Protoviz relates to D3, where Protoviz had its own model of graphical marks and, and the different types of ways you can manipulate them. Whereas D3, you know, gave up on that to just manipulate the document object model of the website, you know, directly. And so you could imagine tools that are smart with respect to data bindings, but actually operate over SVG or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, the advantage that we have, you know, there's always trade-offs, right? One of the advantages with Vega is that the expressive space is going to be uh, somewhat smaller than what you could do with D3. But on the other hand, there's a bunch of things in terms of performance or in terms of deployment, like whether I want to render it in Canvas or SVG being just one example um, that you gain. So there's always these trade-offs in terms of a kind of expressivity and power um, across these design tools. And again, I think 
think the major point, you know, I want to come back to is thinking about for any of these tools, what are the ways in which we have formats that allow them to interoperate in a way so that you, again, you can pick the right tool for the job. And that might be a chain of tools as opposed to one specific tool. So Jeff, I would like to, to conclude asking you more broadly about uh, the relationship between research and industry. So you've done a lot of sure. amazing work in research. And of course, you, you, you have done a lot of really, really good work in industry now. Um, how do you see these two things uh, playing out together? And especially, um, I know that this research has been um, criticized quite a bit lately. And um, you also wrote an article about it and how you can we can improve mm -hmm. this research. And I think I would really sure. like to hear your perspective because you have now um, a lot of experience with both research and industry. And so what do you think is happening there or should happen there? Well, I mean, my, my general position is that I think um, basically practical impact or, you know, industrial use and research, you know, they should be in constant conversation. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's a pretty, you know, I think everyone could agree with that. But at the same time, one shouldn't dictate the other. So, for example, in my own work, I mean, I think different researchers have different approaches. You know, in my own, you know, I think the goal of research is to make sure we're producing some kind of knowledge contribution. Uh, there's either like, you know, <laughs> new, new knowledge that's, that's relatively reliable or new systems, like new ways to do things. Um, and they don't always have to be immediately practical. Though I tend to gravitate towards projects because I just find it more rewarding to, to oftentimes do things that are. And there's also questions about the, you know, the time horizon. You know, a lot of the work that, that I tend to be um, drawn to is things that I think within the next one to five years, you could probably turn into something practical that people could be using. Other people might take a longer term view, like more interested in, in developing ideas that may not actually reach practical fruition for 30 years. And I think we need people working kind of at all of these different time scales in research. Um, and so I think where industry is really important is also inf informing our, our sense of the, the importance of different projects. And it shouldn't dictate it, but in many cases, if I have multiple ideas and they all seem intellectually interesting to me, but I think one's going to have a more significant practical impact, I'm going to more likely work on that project because I think it's in that way, you know, a, a larger contribution uh, to society. Um, so I don't, I think I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before, but that's certainly the way I see it. Um, you also mentioned, you know, issues of, um, like criticism of Viz research. Yeah. Um, I certainly know Stephen Few has written, uh, multiple articles that have been critical of aspects of the visualization research community. Yep. I'm not sure if there's been any sort of larger outcry. If so, I, I would love to see that and respond to it. But even then, I think you have to read Stephen very carefully. It's, uh, at least in his, his initial article, he has a very, at least as I read it, a very specific definition of what he means by visualization research. One which excludes about 60% of what we do <laughs> in the visualization research community. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good or a bad thing. It's just, it's just a, a appropriate to, to take the marks, uh, his remarks in the right context. And so I think we, by research, my reading is he means basically things that adhere to the scientific method. So that means where you have a hypothesis, you're going to run an experiment, typically collect data, you're going to analyze that data and then try and um, drive some generalizations from that. Um, that leaves out you know, huge swaths of engineering work, which are, I think are absolutely critical research, but don't necessarily fall under Stephen's specific definition of what he means by that term. So the first thing to do in having this debate is actually just making it clear what it is we're actually talking about. And in this case, I think it's really focused on um, the subset of uh, research projects that involve you know, experimentation as sort of the primary um, research activity. 
yeah, and maybe this is also related to to the dichotomy between like um yeah, practical work and work that can um either generate only knowledge or be um I don't know, uh, used in 10, 15, 20 or even more years, right? Um I think that's 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 also very important. But that that struck me also in, in I was in Schloss Darkschule in a mostly academic workshop and this is also the first time I realized that uh, this research is in this funny spot that you do practical work, but you also study that practical work. So you are sort of the subject and the and the object, <laughs> you know. And yeah. I think that applies to some degree to to all visualization researchers, right? So they tend to study yeah, themselves yeah. to some degree, and and you know that's kind of tricky. Or, or, of or the artifacts they produce, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I so think there's, yeah, there's yeah. Self reflection is 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 very important, and I think we we have done quite some of it. Uh, uh, sorry, Jeff, I interrupted you. Oh, no problem at all. Um, well, I mean, it, it's also shared uh, more more broadly with human-computer interaction yeah, research, yeah, where yeah, yeah. You, you have people who create new artifacts, and there's typically knowledge production in the form of, of, of the how or why of that artifact was created. Um, you have people who study um, you know, the interactions of human and technology, and you have projects that do both. And that, that is the ones where there is a bit of that, that overlap, right, where you have people who are creating artifacts and then studying how other people are using the artifacts they created. And so there's obviously an inherent bias in that, that then you have to be very careful in your experiment design to combat that bias. That you're, you know, if you're, if you're actually doing a comparative study, you know, the baseline for comparison, typically if you have, you know, multiple points of comparison, all of which are sort of valid contenders for supporting the task that you're trying to help with, that's very important. And so I think there's always room for improvement, especially when you work in these areas that are highly interdisciplinary. Um, and it's true that you do have people who are running, you know, experiments with perhaps, you know, only limited training in those methods. And so um, some great experiments are done. Some have shortcomings that are, you know, maybe not in the design, but in the analysis. Others in which the analysis is fine, but there's a problem in the design. And there's others where people just, you know, the study may be valid, but it doesn't generalize. And, and, and what sort of weighting do you want to put on that? And how well is that um, communicated? And then all the way up to the top where you might have people who just disagree on the importance of the question being asked. Um, and so I think it's, you know, developing the skills of question selection all the way down to the proper you know, execution of these experiments, obviously critical. Um, I think there's some really interesting and important work being done in the field, but I think there's always room for improvement in any research field I've seen. And I think we, you know, can and should push hard to, you know, educate people, you know, newcomers, um, and build out the right educational curricula that does bridge disciplines so that we can make the, you know, they'll have the whole field rise together. Mm -hmm. I, I know you wrote a bit on, on future directions as well, or reflected a bit on this. Yeah. What, what do you see as the main, like, um, directions where, where research could, could develop in, or what, what do you see as the, the hot areas in the next few, uh, years, maybe? Oh, and it seems like exciting research areas. Um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to answer that definitively in the sense that there's just a lot of different fronts that are yeah, exciting. It has I become think, so diversified, think, no? Yeah. That's, that's yeah, yeah. And so true. I so certainly, I mean, so the things that I'm most interested in, which is bias, but, you know, I'm here, so I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think more experimental work on perception, but that goes hand in hand with model building. Mm -hmm. So not just saying people were faster in this case than in that case, or more accurate in case in that case. I mean, that's a useful starting point for gathering data. But we can, can we actually start tying that to... 
um, some some models, even if you know certainly approximate in terms of like how people perform perception and cognitive tasks in ways that we can then test our knowledge and our theories, and maybe also um, create mechanisms that might better inform things like ranking or suggestion, you know, and like design aids, etc. I think that's exciting. Um, I think one of the critical areas is one we've already discussed, which is in this term of like, how do automated algorithms, particularly like statistical models, et cetera, and, you know, interactive visual tools go hand in hand. So how, what's the right way to leverage, you know, large scale computation and model building to support human tasks? So this includes predictive interfaces. It includes going beyond just visualization tools to these richer visual analysis tools that will also incorporate a variety of forms of modeling. And how do we do that in a way that A, again, keeps, you know, the, the, the human aspect front and center, um, and also avoids like known biases or pitfalls. I could just, you know, model things like crazy and then, you know, take whatever comes back that looks significant. But we know lots of reasons why this is a terrible idea. And so what are the ways that we actually simultaneously study, you know, biases and, you know, in human cognition, um, also uh, common statistical fallacies and start, um, you know, thinking about those in the design of our tools. Um, whether it's just we design the tool in a way that sort of biases against them or maybe even has methods that kind of automatically recognize certain, you know, problematic conditions and brings that to the user's attention. Yeah, which actually means that um, visualization researchers need to talk and work together with people with different backgrounds, I, I, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's. Yeah, important. yeah. And I think, it, you know, it spans it spans issues in statistics, machine learning, uh, psychology and computer science. I mean, it's really interesting. Um, one other area that I would just mention, because I think there's a lot of interesting activity currently, is really at the intersection of fields, particularly databases and visualization. Oh, yeah. But, you know, yeah. for, for example, for supporting um, more scalable interactive exploration, I think, you know, um, folks from, from machine learning, particularly people building machine learning systems, should be deeply involved in that conversation. Absolutely. So we had a workshop yeah. at the Viz conference uh, this year called um, Data Systems for Interactive Analysis, where we had lots of uh, uh, young researchers from the database field. Um, we also have a, a, there's a workshop um, at um, Sigmod this summer uh, called Hilda for human in the loop data analysis. <laughs> and I think that's going to be uh, a really exciting workshop as well. Um, so again, I think these, um, these different approaches from these different uh, you know, sub-disciplines, bringing them together, I think is going to result in much better systems. Okay, well, Jeff, thanks a lot. I, I, I hope we cover some ground. I, as, as usual, we could go on for, forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really glad uh, we managed to do this um, at least after four years. Hopefully, we don't have to wait four more years to have you back on the show. <laughs> um, it's like the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like the Olympics. Or maybe it's just the right rhythm. <laughs> All right. I'll see you in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good. See. yeah. By the way, well, and listeners, if you're interested in Lyra, we will have Boku on the show in a few weeks. So we are now, you know, we have a, a conversation started there already. So that's great. And we can learn oh, more fantastic. about uh, the tool. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jeff. All right. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, we have a request. If you can spend a couple of minutes reading us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're of course on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have an email newsletter. 
So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage datastory.es and look for the link that you find on the bottom in the footer. So one last thing that we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want to us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for us. And that's all for now. See you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. <music> Data Stories is brought to you by Click, who allows you to explore the hidden relationships within your data that lead to meaningful insights. Let your instincts lead the way to create personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards with ClickSense, which you can download for free at www.click.de slash datastories.